Our Father, we come to a moment like this together asking that you would create in us holy anticipation. We, your people, are opening your word, and I pray that you would create ears to hear, hearts to respond. I pray, God, that you would give us courage, boldness, fearlessness as we receive the authoritative words of Jesus over our life. And particularly as we come to a moment where he is speaking about our money, God, we want to come and just ask that our defensiveness and the places where we've been deceived and the places where we are clinging to the things of this world, that in these moments, Holy Spirit, would you apply this word to our lives in such a way that we are transformed changed, that you would give us freedom and fullness beyond what this world can offer as a result of these moments set aside to hear from you. We believe together that you are a speaking God. Would you do that even now? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, You may have a financial planner, Ashley and I do. And the marks of a good financial planner, they're someone that's trustworthy, that can sit with you and faithfully map out where you are currently, saying, okay, here's the lay of the land, and now what are your hopes and dreams and desires? Where are you headed, and how are we going to get there through a faithful path? And someone that will patiently sit down and look at where all the dollars are and where all the hopes and dreams are and, and start to map out that journey with you. I've been thankful for someone that has done that with me over the years. And, and this morning, as we come to this, this moment, as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount together, we realize that, that as Jesus continues to, to speak into every area of our life, yet again, he's going to live into what we are calling the, the title of this series, which is, I See Things Upside Down, that as Jesus speaks to us about our finances, we're going to feel the upside-downness of his kingdom vision as to how it squares with what is common and expected for us in our moment in time. We're going to realize that discipleship includes economics, (laughs) and that as Jesus speaks into a, a moment for us as people that live in the West, that live in a major city in the West, that live in the center of a major city in the middle of the West, that we live in a moment and a time where what comes naturally and was expected in the way that we might think about our financial planning, Jesus is going to speak in such a way that, that flips our hearts as he continues to see things upside down. Um, in many ways, if, if you've read the Gospels, if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you know that his life is consistently bumping into financial realities and he's flipping things for people. We know the rich young ruler where Jesus tells this well-meaning, well-intentioned, moral young man that until you sell everything and give it away, the riches of heaven are not yours. And then a chapter later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus encounters a guy named Zacchaeus that was a tax collector. And when he meets Jesus, he doesn't give 100%, but he gives 50% away. And Jesus says, salvation has come to your house today. And Jesus talks about a widow with a little coin that she faithfully gives. And Jesus says, that's, that's our picture of generosity 
open-handedness with the thing that was most precious, the thing that she had. Or someone comes to Jesus and they say, hey, we're with you. We want to go where you're going. And Jesus says, I don't know that you do. Do you know that the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head? He's homeless. He's given it all. Do you really want to go where I'm going? And you realize that all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's, he's touching and encountering and upending financial realities for people because discipleship includes economics. And in our verses today in the Sermon on the Mount, it's as if Jesus is sitting behind the desk of the financial planner and going, come on in. Come and take a seat. Maybe you saw what I did with the rich young ruler. Maybe you bumped into me with Zacchaeus. Maybe you heard his story. I just want you to come in and take a seat because in these moments, I want to explain to you a kingdom financial plan. I want to expose to you. It's as if in these short verses in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, here's what kingdom financial planning looks like. This is why you saw me interact in those places in those ways. I want to draw you in so that you can feel the full weight of here's the strategy and the structure of what it looks like to to see things with Jesus's eyes, even in the ways that it may very well flip our world upside down. So you're invited with boldness and courage to really listen for the voice of Jesus, even in the ways that it may interrupt our lives. Well, what is a divine financial plan? What does a kingdom financial plan look like? Living like Jesus is king, even while still in this world. I think the first thing that we're going to see is this. The first step in, in kingdom financial planning is that it starts with our eyes. It's about fixing your gaze. What do you long for? What do you daydream about? What do you focus on? What do you delight in? I believe that Jesus is going to paint a picture for us that shows that a a divine financial plan starts with where you fixed your gaze. And just to feel the flow of this, you may have felt this as, as Luke was reading it over us, that in verses 19 through 21, Jesus is very clearly preaching about money. He's talking about your treasure and where it's placed. And in verse 24, at the end of the passage that we read, he's also talking about money, saying you can't serve God and money. And then in the middle, in verses 22 and 23, did you hear it? He's talking about your eyes. If they're good, you'll be filled with light. If they're bad, you're filled with darkness. What's he he doing? Did Jesus lose his train of thought? You know, I'm, I'm teaching about money, and then all of a sudden I'm teaching about your eyes, and then I'm back to... No, I think actually what Jesus has done is right in the middle of his teaching, he's given us a a decoder ring, a starting point to make sense of the whole of this teaching. And so the way that we're going to take it this morning is we're going to take this middle teaching and then we'll go back to the beginning and and work through to the end because I think he has slid right into the middle of something that's really key if we're going to understand kingdom financial planning. And it's this, that it starts with how we fix our gaze. Look at verse 22 and 23 with me. It says the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now it's interesting, as Jesus is teaching about the eye in the midst of teaching about about our treasure, he says that if your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light. But under that, in the original language, what we really get there is this, that if your eye is single, kind of an odd statement that's clunky to translate, trying to figure out what Jesus is doing there, it seems that what he's saying is that where your vision is singular, 
where it's focused, where you, he's not just saying it's good to have one eye, but he means what, what he is saying is it's good to have one vision, that you are settled on what is most important. And in fact, he's saying the whole of your life will be directed by having singular, clear vision, as opposed to having eyes that are bad or evil, roaming and focusing on things that are unimportant, dangerous, that are detours, that will rob your soul of what is intended. You see, what you set your gaze on will set the course of your financial plan. And I think, speaking in very broad brushstrokes, recognizing there's way more nuance here, but for the sake of us making sense of this, I think we all fall into basically two categories as it relates to how we fix our gaze and our financial planning. Some of us are spenders. Some of us are spenders and we fix our gaze on the timestamp, the horizon that is today, maybe this week, maybe this month, but rarely beyond that. Spender is fascinated with the next gadget, the next experience, the next trip, the next great meal. It's fun to be friends with a spender. They're fun to travel with. They oftentimes give good gifts that they have no business buying, right? You like being around a spender because spenders are fun and they're in the moment and like the money is here for us to live and spenders can often look at the other category and think, well, gosh, you're not fully alive because what are you, what are you waiting on? Like here's these dollars. Live life. Spenders are living today for all that it is. Um, the paycheck has often gone quickly, maybe not making it all the way to the end of the month. And I think culturally, we fit more into this category. This is the reason that the average American is carrying somewhere between six dollars and $10,000 of personal debt, because it has been about spending in the moment. I remember in college, I don't know why this is allowed to do this on college campuses, but I remember they would come and set up these, these credit card tables on campus when you're walking to class or going to the football game, and it's like, hey, sign here, and you'll get this cool shirt and a credit card, and I remember how many of my friends were like, this thing is like magic. Just swipe and they give it to me. You know, this is a spender's great delight. You know, I can, I can have expansive spending power today no matter what it's going to cost me tomorrow. A spender. Are you a spender? When you consider where is your gaze set, is it set on the experience of today, of this month, and tomorrow will worry about itself? And then there's this second category. These are the savers. So I'm a saver and I'm married to a spender. And we both have the potential. That's good. That's called sanctification. That's God's design for our holiness. Um, and it's often the case that savers and spenders can look at one another and think that it's so flawed. You know, a saver can look at a spender and go, well, gosh, you're just thinking about today or tomorrow or next week. And in actuality, what we ought to be thinking about is 10 or 20 or 30 years from now. A saver doesn't get that jolt of joy from hitting the buy now on Amazon, but they do get the jolt of joy, right? Savers in the room of, of putting the money into the savings account at the beginning of the month and seeing the number grow. <laughs> You're like, ah, oh, I'm so prepared. And sometimes you want to check it a few times throughout the month just to make sure that number is still there. And you want to see if it's just ticking up ever so slightly because it gives you confidence and courage, hope, peace. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's just as it should be. I've planned for the down payment for the house or the next house or the car or the, 
the retirement. I know exactly how that's going to unfold. The kids' college funds. The savers have the Arizona 529 plans before the child is born, right? Because everything is okay. And the truth is, Jesus invites us into the kingdom financial planning office and says, I've got news for you. I am going to upend the vision of both savers and spenders. That if it relates to your money, your money spent today on an experience or saved tomorrow for your security, if either of those is what's delivering your joy and your confidence and is the center of your identity where it finds its grounding and its hope, Jesus says, I've got a very different word for both of you. I'm inviting you into something radically different. He initiates a third way that extends our horizon. And I want to hear it. I want you to hear it with me in verses 19 and 20. Because if, if the first mark of the divine financial plan is it has to do with how you fix your gaze, secondly, we're going to see that that leads us to how we situate our treasures. And I want you to hear the way Jesus is initiating a third way as he talks about situating our treasures. Look at verse 19 and 20 with me. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, Jesus is painting two pictures here and he says, well, don't do this. Don't lay up all of your treasure in places where Moth and rust can get in there and where thieves can steal. Here he's talking about this slippery slope of accumulation. Whether you're a spender or a saver, what he's talking about is if your gaze is fixed on something that is in this world. He's saying beware. Beware because money is deceptive. It'll trip you up. Your greed is a sneaky little thing. So much of our sin we can very quickly recognize. I think it's one of the reasons that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus consistently says things like, watch out, be on guard as it relates to our money. Because so many other sins, you don't have to wonder, was I in sin there or not? When I reacted in anger, when I was operating out of lust, we're able to go, that was clearly sin. But oftentimes when it comes to our money, greed is this deceptive, crafty little thing that's sneaking around the edges and convincing us of our of our wisdom or our thoughtfulness or our, our faithfulness in this moment, just to live in the moment. And, and we, we can convince ourselves of so many things. And Jesus is saying, be on guard, watch out. Don't lay up your treasure in a place where this world can touch it. The slippery slope of sticky fingers and of accumulation. It reminds me of the, the interview with John D. Rockefeller. You may know that name, right? Rockefeller fabulously wealthy. When he was alive, he was the most wealthy man on the planet. And many have said, kind of doing the numbers, it seems that he may have been the wealthiest person ever to have lived on the planet, potentially. Rockefeller, in an interview, was asked, John, at the height of, your, at the height of his wealth, he was asked, how much is going to be enough? John, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Isn't that the way it goes? Whatever the number is, the target is always moving. The goalposts are always getting moved back on us as to what's going to provide my security and my joy. It used to think, you know, at one point in our life, we just thought, if I can get to this point, then all of a sudden you get there and you go, well, this isn't it. The goalpost moves a little bit further and you just keep moving and he's going, listen, 
Beware. Do not lay up treasures on earth, always thinking that something here is going to be able to deliver in the ways that you thought. And then you feel it as Jesus reaches out to his disciples and he's going to put his hand under their chin. He starts to raise their, their eyes saying, okay, listen, what would it look like for you to have a healthy gaze, a singular vision on what matters most? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, verse 20 says. Now, isn't that interesting? He's not trying to undercut desire. Did you hear the words? Lay up for yourselves treasure. He doesn't want to remove desire. He wants to reshape and fulfill it. And so what he's saying to his people is, yes, lay up for yourselves treasure. That's what I want for you. The sort of treasure that a moth can't eat and that a thief can't steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I want you to have the fullness of all that God has in store for you. And so I'm going to shoot you straight. You've got to lay up your treasures in a different place altogether. You need a different time horizon. He's lifting our eyes to the eternal. It reminds me in Hebrews 11, we read about these heroes of faith throughout the Old Testament. I just want you to consider a couple of these. You know, you think about Abraham. What we know about Abraham when he was Abram is that he lived in Ur and uh, the theologian Scott Haifman says he was fat and sassy. He was loving life in Ur. And what he means is he was wealthy and had all of his family. He had everything. He was, he was just loving life in Ur, says Scott Haifman. And, and that's the idea that when God comes and says, I want you to leave everything and come with me. For Abram, it's, it's an equation of, well, gosh, why would I do that? Why would I go out on your word not knowing all that I'm leaving behind? Or Moses, who had the opportunity to be raised in Pharaoh's household, but it says in Hebrews 11 that he laid that down, and he ended up living in the desert for 40 years as he's a part of God's redemptive plan in these people's lives. The question is, why Abram, why Moses on the call of God did they lay everything down? And Hebrews 11 says this, because they were looking to a city whose maker was God. They believed that their home was not in this world. And so when God called, they laid down the Pharaoh's household, being raised like royalty. They laid down all of the comfort of home and the safety of their riches, and they went on a journey with God. And in Hebrews 11, he says, that's what spells this reality. Jesus, in the sense, is he's saying, listen, until you lay up your treasures in some place that this world can't touch, you're not going to truly be free. You're not going to experience real fullness and joy. I want you to imagine this week that you get a chance to go sit with your financial planner. Your financial advisor is really excited. Hey, come sit down. Let's talk through some things. I've got a really new, exciting product to fill you in on. And I really think this is it. I think this is the product that you should just roll all the other things, all the other accounts, whatever money you've got stocked away. Let's roll it all in here because, listen, this thing provides some amazing returns like amazing big-time returns. There's like one slight downside, but I'll, so I'll, I'll shoot you straight. But don't forget, what I told you is really phenomenal returns, right? You with me? Slight downside, at the end of the week, it all evaporates. But I think you ought to go with this. This is the right product. It's great returns for the next week. So whatever you put in there, you're going to get really great returns. So are you with me? Now, don't do that, right? little insider info. 
That's a bad plan. But what Jesus is saying is if you only realize that you're eternal, that's every one of our financial plans if it has to do with this world. He's going, we go, well, that's absurd. Of course I would go, well, not that. And he's going, but you think 30 years is this really wise, long-term plan? He's going, your life isn't even a week long in biblical terms. It says it's like a mist that'll be gone by the time the sun is up. And you're created to live forever. And Jesus is beckoning to you saying, would you live for what really matters? But we're so bound up in such small things, rolling all of our hopes and our passions and our confidence into something that's going to evaporate by the time the sun is hot. And Jesus loves his disciples too much to remain silent. And he goes, oh, don't do that. Don't lay up your treasures in a spot. Like if your hope and your joy and your fullness is, is packed away somewhere that a downturn in the market can take it away from you? Oh, what folly. Please tell me you're not doing that. You get the sense that Jesus, who has seen the big picture, is going, oh, please tell me that your sense of identity and value and strength, the way that you know who you are is because of this target, this number, this plan. Please tell me that some unforeseen circumstances can't rob you of all of that. It can't, can it? He says, no, 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 store it up in heaven. And this is, a, this is a call to radical generosity. When he says treasures in heaven, this is what he told the rich young ruler. He says, when you sell your possessions and you give it to the needy, you will have treasure in heaven. It's the same phrase. What he's calling us to is a life of generosity, which can feel really overwhelming if you're sitting in your financial planner's office and he goes, well, here's where we're going. Radical generosity that really believes in, in the fact that you are eternal and not made for this world. And you go, well, I'm right here right now. And that feels a little bit overwhelming. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you, would you be willing to take initial steps with Jesus? One resource I'll commend to you, because the Morris family's been working through it, is a book called God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. This was an interesting resource that was passed off to me in this summer while I was on sabbatical. Ashley and I were kind of working through some of the principles in this, and we've, out of it, it, it encourages you how to develop a, a personal or a family generosity covenant, how to start thinking about what would it look like to say enough is enough, to figure out how each incremental advance financially isn't going to be met by an incremental advance in my life circumstances and in my spending? How do I not just strain towards those goals that match this world, but I'm actually straining towards generosity and dreaming of the things that I might be able to do with my dollars? To start living a life that might look more like what John Wesley talks about, John Wesley, the famed Methodist preacher, the way that he summarized his training on on finances. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, so that you can give all you can. And for him, that meant in his day and age, he said that the kind of standard of living, just a simple standard of living life was about 30 pounds a year living in England at that time. And he said, so I'm going to live on that. So when he was making 34 pounds, he lived on 30. And he given the others, given the rest away. And when he made 40 pounds, he gave the rest away. But John Wesley became fabulously famous and fabulously wealthy. And at the peak of his preaching and writing career, people reading his books and his sermons on both sides of the ocean, he was making about 1,450 pounds a year. And he lived on 30, and he gave away 1,420 pounds. 
He once said publicly in, a, in such a way that it was said that people would kind of scratch their chin and go like, we'll see about that. But he said, if I die with more than 10 pounds, you can call me a thief. And when he died, it was estimated that he stewarded somewhere around $50 million current day currency. $50 million passed through his hands, and when he died, he only had the coins in his pocket. Mainly because he sat in the office of the kingdom financial planner who said, you are eternal. You're not made for this world. And you have the opportunity to daily be making down payments under the joy and the fullness of the experience of stepping into what God has secured for you. And here we are so bound up with our little lives thinking if we can just make it about us, it will, always, it will finally deliver the joy, which incidentally, it never does. Right? It never does. It creates more stress and anxiety and worry and planning and clinging. He's going, oh, that you would quit laying up in this life and you'd start laying up in the life to come. It reminds me, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's one of those preacher stories that you hear, so I'll share it with you. You know, the man that had the, he had a farmer and uh, he was delivering a baby lamb and then surprisingly, it was actually twins, twin baby lambs. It was like miraculous. And he said to his wife after delivering these precious little lambs that he was going to raise up, he said, you know what? God has been so gracious to us. One of these lambs is going to be ours and one is going to be God's. And when we sell them, we will, we will give the money away. We will give the money that is God's to him. And you fast forward a few months and he comes in somewhat dejected one day and she said, honey, what's going on? And he says, uh, God's lamb died. And she said, ah, oh, what do you mean? I didn't know we knew which was which. And he said, no, yeah, th definitely the one I had marked out. God's lamb died. The other one's okay, you know. And the reality is that isn't it always God's lamb that dies? Like when we really start feeling like Jesus is going, would you come with me? Maybe like my kingdom destination for you feels overwhelming. It's like, but would you at least take a step? And there's part of us that because the goalposts are always moving, and it's like, well, I'm got this student thing going on right now, or like the kids have more cavities than I was expecting, the AC just went out, so generosity, yes, I'm all in on that, but like another day, because it's always God's lamb that dies, and it's in this text where Jesus is going, listen, 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 would you just lean in with me and realize that you get to live in such a way today that can contribute to your experience of the fullness of glory and joy one day in my presence. And your dollars lead to that reality. Would you start taking steps? Well, it leads us to a final question. We're talking about this divine financial planning. It starts with how you set your gaze, which I think I would invite you to ask that question. What do I daydream about? What do I think about? What do I think that if, if that were true of me, I would finally have joy and fullness? Where do you set your gaze? Secondly, your treasure is going to follow wherever your gaze is. This is what he's saying in verse 19 to 20. But lastly, why is this so important? And we have to hear this. I think this is why Jesus is so urgent. Because your heart will follow your treasure. Where your gaze is, your treasure goes. Where your treasure goes, your heart goes. And this is why he's urgent when it comes to our finances. Let me show it to you in the text. Read verse 21 and 24 with me. It says this. For... You could also read that as because. So he's saying, listen, 
don't store up here, store up in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, he's actually saying there's this beautiful thing that you have the capacity to direct your heart. Where is your heart going to land? He's saying you get to determine it. It's based off of your gaze, what you set your eyes on, your treasure will go there and your heart will follow. This is a tremendously freeing and empowering reality. You get to direct your heart. The struggle is if our gaze is on the timestamp horizon of today or this month or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years is that our treasure is going into something that is incredibly unstable and our heart is following along behind. Our heart is being packed into a place that can't support its weight. It is unstable and dangerous in a very real way. This is why Jesus talks about your money 10 times more than he talks about your sexuality. This is why Jesus, or pardon me, why the scriptures speak about money 2,300 times throughout the Bible. Because God knows that money will trap you. It will rob you. Your riches, it says in Proverbs that the rich man believes that his money is his strong city or her strong city. The idea being that I am secure and we think we've got this expansive and secure life, but what we've actually done is we've worked ourselves into a very small corner. And Jesus is going, oh, please, listen, your heart is being bound up in a really difficult place. In the original language in verse 24, the word impossible is used twice. When he says no one can serve two masters, what he's saying is it's impossible to serve two masters. At the end of it, when he says you cannot serve God and money, he says it's impossible. And in the middle, what he tells you is you'll either love one or hate the other, which means you will cling to one and devalue the other. So whatever you're clinging to, the other will slowly trail along behind. So the question is, where have you set your gaze? Where have you set your gaze? What are you daydreaming about? What are you, what are you raptured in thinking, this, de- this delivers my joy and my fullness? Because you will start to cling to it. Your treasure will be there. And you will cling to it. And whatever else is not in your hands, in that moment, the other will begin to fade. It will become less valuable, less important. You see, this is why it is so critical I think Jesus, with great affection for his disciples who are so bound up in the day-to-day, is going, oh, I love you. And I do not want you to waste your life on small, unimportant things that will rob you of your joy and your freedom. Savers, spenders, there's something better. He's inviting us to set our gaze on what is truly beautiful and true in hopes that we would become open-handed, faithful stewards that finally understand what it is to live properly with our dollars in this world. But the truth is, I, I hope you're not surprised by this, but I hope you hear it with fresh ears. It is not until you set your gaze on Jesus that you can finally live rightly, freely, and fully as it relates to your finances. It's only as our eyes are arrested with the beauty and the glory of him that will finally be free, because this is what we'll see. One that didn't just leave the Pharaoh's household, 
He didn't just leave the comforts of Ur. He left the praise and glory and beauty and wealth and riches of heaven. And why? What did he set his gaze on? He set his gaze on his bride. You, the church, he looked at men and women that thought this broken, sinful world that can't deliver their fullness is what life is about, riddled with their greed and their sin and their small thinking. And he looked at them and it says in the book of Luke that he set his gaze towards Jerusalem saying, I am on a crash course with death because I'm going to rescue my bride. I'm going to rescue her from her greed and her selfishness and her small, wasted life. I'm going to win her back to something beautiful and true and rich. And Jesus in his death was paying the price for our selfishness, our sin, and our greed. And in his resurrection glory, with blood pumping through his veins, seated on a throne, what he is saying is, I've got something better. Come to me. Set your gaze on me and see my beauty, my love and my affection as I set my gaze on you. Out of love and respect for the Father, I came for the bride, setting aside the the shame of the cross for the joy set before me so that I could win you to me. You see, when we see Jesus being emptied, becoming poor, to pour out his riches and his blessing on his bride... It's what finally frees our hearts to say, ah, what an expansive landscape to live in, in the glory of Jesus, to live for his purposes. Would you set your gaze on him? Set your gaze on him daily, being reminded of his beauty, and begin to let your treasure follow, because that will lead you to cling to him, to worship him, to experience the fullness of a heart that has been placed in the only spot where it is secure forever. (laughs) Uh, Jesus loves you too much to let you settle for anything less. Just set your gaze on him and experience your heart following along behind.